This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and from everything in between. And we love telling stories about American dreamers. And as always, our American Dreamers series is sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard to help effectuate policies that turn small businesses into bigger ones. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Bill Austin, but you'll be glad to have met him. Let's take a listen. No one had ever paid for a quarter of school for me. I had to earn my own money, and I took a job making earpieces for hearing aids. I didn't really expect at all to be in the hearing aid business. I thought it was a boring nothing business. I was going to be heroic and save lives as a doctor. And what do I care about old people? I was going to be with the young nurses in the hospital <laughs> doing great things. And uh, But an old man came in and no one was able to help him. And they asked me if I could take a look at him. And I did. And when I saw what it meant in his eyes, that was my first like real direct contact with somebody helping them with hearing. And when I saw what that meant to him, it was like giving him life. I went home to uh, 2770 Dean Boulevard down by the Calhoun Beach Hotel where I was staying and I had a cot upstairs and I went upstairs, sat on the edge of the cot. I do remember on the way home, there was a quote in the cantilever of the bus that struck me and I've lived my life kind of in that direction and said, the true path to humility is not to stoop till you're lower than yourself, but rather to stand at your true height against some greater nature that will show the real smallness of your greatest greatness. And that's how I felt. I didn't want to be falsely humble. I wanted to be challenged like that by some greater nature. I got home and I sat on the cot. And as I sat on the edge of the cot, I started talking out loud to myself, just like I was talking to somebody, but there was no one there. And I said, Bill, the reason you want to be a doctor is so you can help people. If you do this work, you'll be able to help people and you won't kill anyone. As a doctor, you're sure to kill many. And I realized something that I hadn't seen before. I saw the future and knew what I wanted to be part of. I realized at that moment, I said, Bill, how many people can you help a day as a doctor? 20, 25, night will fall, no one will be coming then, you'll wake up the next day and it'll be again serving those people that you can serve if you work with teams of people, the hands of many. Coming together in a business, your products and services can touch an unlimited number of people. You'll have the leverage to move the world. And I wanted to be part of that team. I didn't have to own it. I didn't have to run it. I've always felt like no one works for me. I work with them. I just saw that as the future, and I had to go to work to get to the future. And so the first thing I did, the only asset I had 
was a little rental house that I'd made money during the Korean War. Scrap metal was valuable, and I took the axe to many a vintage car. I chopped them up and sold them for scrap, and I made enough money to invest in a little rental house. And that's all I had was that little rental house. So I sold that house, and that was the money I used to start the business. I had $3,000, and I had to make a profit before I ran out of money. I'd read books that said, uh, well, you know, you got to expect to have financing for the first five years, or it'll be at least three years before you're profitable when you start a new business. Well, I figured I had three months. I didn't have a choice. I was down to the last money to meet my cost that week at the end of three months. And the next week, the checks arrived more than enough to cover that week, and I barely made it. I'd receive an order. I said, you know, hearing is the connection to the family and life, and who knows, this might be a graduation or a, a wedding of a child or something for this person's hearing aid that we're servicing. So at the end of the day, the last pickup of mail was about 5.30 or so in front of our facility. If there was one order that was completed after the mail pickup, just even one order, I would always put in the car, drive it downtown to the main post office, go to the back up on the dock, ask the guys working there which box was going out, which was being processed next, and I would put it in that gurney to make sure that that hearing aid was moving back to the person who needed it. There wasn't as much profit in that transaction as the gas that it took to go there and come back. But to me, the most important thing was to not let down someone who trusted me with that service. And I wanted to do the best I could every single time. And I got stacks of letters from people saying they never received service like this, and the word spread. And so our business grew rapidly. And what a voice, Bill Austin's. And it's like so many of our American Dreamers stories. Starting out with nothing, taking that little rental house and taking a chance. And in the end, really providing a service to people, changing their lives. Hearing aids doesn't seem so glamorous. It didn't seem so glamorous to Bill. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Bill Austin's story. He's the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies. His story, here on Our American Stories. And we 
continue with our American stories and Bill Austin's story. And Bill picks up things with the story of how hearing loss used to be addressed many decades ago. Um, you know, the cupped hand, <laughs> a horn from an animal, the wide surface of a fan, the sound would strike it and you could hold it in your teeth and uh, the vibration would go through your teeth and stimulate the other ear. There was acoustic chairs that would pick up, uh, like in lion's mouth, the sound and you could have a, a discreet tube you'd stick in your ear. There hearing canes people would walk with and then they'd hold their cane up and try to talk to you. There, there were all kinds of non-electric things made in the 1800s. At the turn of the century, Miller Reese Hutchins in Mobile, Alabama had developed the Acousticon, an electronic hearing aid, which was used at a coronation in Great Britain. They were A and B batteries. You'd strap something on your leg. Uh, you'd have something under your clothes, and then you'd have a giant microphone, which would be about that big around. You'd wear outside on your chest to hear with, and big, thick black cords running up to the ear. And so the aids used to be uh, large. You'd, sometimes you'd carry them. Some of the electronic aids, you'd have two people carry and put it in a room for a businessman to sit there and talk with. And then the transistor was developed in the 50s, and hearing aids were one of the first things that transistors went into, actually. That made it possible to make them a lot smaller. We made eyeglass hearing aids that Eleanor Roosevelt wore in her glasses, the Otarian. Big, thick, huge bows. No one was supposed to know. I mean, the things were so thick. They were <laughs> thick. And, you know, they won't know I wear hearing aids because they're in my glasses. <laughs> I don't know who wouldn't know. And they had barrette models that you could hide in your hair and earring models that were big, clunky-looking earrings that would clip on your ears and uh, different ways to try to make hearing aids discreet, and uh, they were pretty big. I felt, I could just feel people, and I felt that they felt impaired and stigmatized because they were wearing something hanging outside and I said that's like a crutch if we can put it in the ear and if it's custom made for their ear it'll be like part of them and they will feel better about the correction and then I looked at the space in the ear and I said that's just unused space I can take these parts that are strung out in mass-produced hearing aids and recombine them into the space. I can get them in the space. I can make these things. In 1961, I made the first really nice in-the-ear hearing aids. And that was considered, uh, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time. And people would call it an invention. I never called it an invention. As far as I was concerned, I was just reconfiguring components to fit in space that happened to exist in the ear. <laughs> Hearing Aid Magazine asked me in 1979, what will be the future of the hearing aid business? And I said, there is no future because in the future, we will really be in the communication business, helping people communicate across barriers of language, distance, noise, to help people with normal hearing. 
communicate and function better. 39 years later, in August of 2018, Starkey unveiled Livio AI, a hearing aid that does just that. Translate 27 languages, forwards and backwards, Russian to English, English to Russian, it doesn't matter. Starkey's relentless pursuit of innovation in service of their fellow man has led the company to grow to $650 million in annual revenue, making it the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America and leading Forbes to estimate Bill's personal net worth at $2.5 billion. I had to go to work for money, I'd stay home. I, I just, it doesn't motivate me. It does not motivate me. I'm not interested. I haven't ever been interested. I knew I, it's unhandy to run out of it, and you have to treat it with respect and not waste it. But uh, as far as being motivated, somebody saying, this could be really big, you can have a really lot of money. I, like, I'm about as bored by that as I can imagine. What is exciting is to have the resources to say, yes, we can. And this Yes We Can is most seen in their Starkey Hearing Foundation, which is Bill's primary focus, not running the company. <laughs> They've given the gift of hearing to those who can't afford it in over 100 countries and to over 1 million people so far. So we uh, have an opportunity to earn from our service that we give to those who can pay and then if we do a really good job, we have enough left over that we can help those that need our help. And, you know, I usually manage to use up most of our money. I, I find good uses for it. I travel the world helping people with hearing aids. More than half the year I'm traveling because it's what I know how to do. I'll do thousands and thousands of hearing aids per year myself. I've listened to more hearing aids than anyone in the world many, many times over. And I could make more money, I guess, if I concentrated on work, but I wouldn't know life. So I trade money for life. You know, there's no other person that is president of a hearing aid company or CEO. None, none in the world that would do what I do. For sure. There are six companies, soon to be five, that make 98% of the world's hearing aids. We're the only one in the U.S. The other ones, they never touch a patient. They've never fit a hearing aid in their lives, not one of them. Several layers down, it's all suits and business. There's none of them that would take the time to work on deformed ears. Like, I took the time to detail those very difficult ears that were sent pictures of. They're just hugely deformed. I'll go over there after you leave, and I'll cut the shells, and then I'll go up and show the technician how to build them. Anyone else would say, my time's worth too much. That's just one little pair of hearing aids, one order. They would say, you know, I've got million-dollar businesses to, to, to take care of here. I can't do that sort of thing. Well, I can do it. If you pay someone else to do it, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm rich, here, I, I feel guilty, so here's some money. But no one makes more time. When you give your time, you give yourself. Where does Bill Austin get this view on life? 
I couldn't rationalize the existence of God. I mean, I just couldn't rationalize it any way I think about it and think about it. And in my very early 20s, I was thinking about what God would tell me to do if he could talk, but I just kept trying to think for him. I never asked. And the greatest thing I ever did was ask. I don't know what possessed me to do that because I never had before. I just said, I'm not going to think about it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to accept on faith alone. That was the best thing I ever did. Because the direction I received was better than any idea I've ever had. It's given me life because I've been able to focus on what's really important. And so my idea of wealth, if you had to say, Bill, are you wealthy? It's not, a, it's not a number in the billions. It's not a money. I'm wealthy if someone needs a hand up, if I can say, yes, I can, I, I'll help you. That lifts me up. I'm spiritually nourished by the work I do. I feel energized. And if I ever had to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I would feel poor. I would feel very poor. And my goodness, this is more than just a business or a startup or entrepreneur story. And again, this is what we've discovered doing these American Dreamers series. And they're, they're just, each time I hear them, I'm just more stunned each time. The generosity of these guys, the nature of the people, especially these founders. He, he wanted to solve a problem, and he did. People felt impaired and stigmatized from these large things hanging off their ears. And he goes, I just wanted to custom make them for their ears so it would become a part of them. And that changes someone's life. And then on top of that, here he is giving away over a million, again, a million hearing aids for nothing. For nothing. That's some social justice, folks. I mean, creating jobs, creating a tax base, solving a problem, and then giving away one million one million hearing aids, which you could have charged someone for. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Austin's story, a part of our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories and Bill Austin's story, the billionaire hearing aid CEO who spends most of his time fitting hearing aids on individual customers. When the president of Burundi, we were there a few years ago, and I was fitting people in church at a congregation of 8,000, and they televised the service, and they asked me to come up to the church. I was fitting on the grounds behind the church, and say something and so I came and spoke to the congregation and I, I stepped down and the president got up and he said can you believe that the Starkey people came all the way from Minnesota to help us and he said and Bill Austin left his and I knew I knew the next word before he said it I knew he was going to say he left his family 
to be with us. And, and I start, I said, no. And he goes ahead and says family. And I said, no, 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 that's wrong. I didn't leave my family. I came here that I might know the rest of my family. And that's just the way I feel. That came out of me without me thinking about it. I had no control over my voice. This is the president of the country and I'm interrupting him when he's talking on TV and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the audience. I was headed out the door to go back and fit hearing aids and I, all of a sudden I just started shouting, no, that's wrong. I, I didn't leave my family. Juarez, Mexico used to be one of the most dangerous border cities. When it was at the height of its bad problems, I went there and a woman came into this hospital where we were doing the mission with her grandson, who was about 13 years old. She said, I've been waiting a month for you to come. She didn't live there. She lived quite a ways away. And I said, well, why didn't you go home? And she said, I couldn't because I might have missed you. And she said, I, I can't live much longer. And my grandson won't be able to take care of himself if he can't hear. When I had the boy hearing good, you should have seen that woman's face. It went from all of this weight of the world on her to just total light. It was like she was happy that she could die. To see someone truly happy that they can die. She had been willing herself to stay alive because she knew her grandson, who was an orphan, couldn't take care of himself. He had no one else. I saw a woman in El Salvador, early 30s, and her kidneys failed. She lost her eyesight. Her hearing was fading out. And they asked her if she had any last wishes. And she said, I would like to thank the people who have cared for me. I, I, I need to hear to be able to thank the people. And they said, well, someone's coming. We were coming in about three weeks. There's someone coming with hearing aids, but you won't be able to live that long. And she said, yes, I will. And she did. They brought her in in a wheelchair. I fit her with hearing aids. Probably about the only time that tears were just running down my cheeks because of the nobility of this woman, not asking for something for herself, but just wanting to be able to thank people. She was so happy. She did thank them. She lived another over two weeks before she died. I learn from every patient I work on because I really care. I've done like six U.S. presidents and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, two popes. I mean, I work on everybody. Movie stars, Steve Martin, Ozzy was just here, Charlton Heston, to whoever. The people that I used to watch, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, when I was a kid, little boy, they, they become my friends. Billy Graham used to say, Bill's my best friend from Minnesota, and Gene Autry would, said I was his best friend. The only thing he was buried with was something I gave him that he treasured more than anything else. You know, I fit Robert Schuller and Hugh Hefner the same day. I have no barriers. And so people really respond to being cared about. 
And some people, even though they're really important, like movie stars and rock stars and celebrities, they have people chasing them all the time because of who they are, wanting their picture with them, wanting this, wanting that. I don't want anything, and they know it. And to have someone care about them who's not looking for something is very special to them. Special to them to feel that, to be cared about without, what am I gonna get? I'm gonna get my picture with this guy, I'm gonna get to go to his rock concert, I'm gonna get something. And I'll be invited to go to rock concerts and things by people who come here and, and I don't go because I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. So they recognize that. So we're on uh, kind of on the same plane, person to person. Instead of them being in the celebrity world and me being a celebrity chaser, they'd like to relate to some people in their lives like that. You know, Warren Buffett came here one day to get hearing aids, and the day he came, I'd just flown in a whole plane load of kids from Idaho School for the Deaf, and I'd fit the kids in Oregon at School for the Deaf and Washington School for the Deaf. I got home, and Idaho said, what about us? And I said, well, I can't come back, but I'll charter a plane and bring the whole school down. And I was working on them, and Warren came in, and so well, I'm going to take care of anybody that shows up. And so I'm detailing impressions over there on that motor, and then I was cutting shells over here. And Warren comes up watching me, and I said, would you like to have lunch? Yeah, yeah, he said, let's have lunch. I said, well, the cafeteria is right up that ramp. Go up there and you can find anything you want to eat, Warren. And I could see the disappointment in his face, and I said, Warren, the conference room is open, just bring your tray in there. So he thought I was gonna join him. Well, anyway, he comes in here, and I'm busy cutting aids for the shells. And so I told Mark McCarthy, I said, go in there and talk to Warren while he's having lunch. And he came out, and he's frustrated because he can't get my attention. So he pulls out this big, thick billfold. It's like almost three inches thick. It's huge, thick wallet. And he holds it out in front of me, and I'm down there cutting shells, and he said, do you want Warren's money? And I said, no, I don't need Warren's money. <laughs> he wanted to buy my company because he couldn't get my attention. And the company isn't for sale, and I don't want to sell it. And I told him, I said, it wouldn't be the same. They're looking at, what's your return? What's the shareholder return? What are you making? I'm giving a lot away. That wouldn't go over so big. I could have sat here and had lunch with a guy. Some people pay a couple million dollars to have lunch with him. He came to me and I didn't have lunch with him. And the reason I didn't have lunch with him is why well, had some poor kids that no one knows from Idaho that needed my help. So what am I gonna do? Neglect them because some big deal is here? And what a what a story. Uh, Warren Buffett has a net worth of over $80 billion, and yet Bill Austin didn't treat him any differently. He was busy fitting hearing aids for the kids at that Idaho school for the deaf, and then he helped Warren Buffett. 
And I just love it. He said, look, there are people paying a million dollars to have lunch with this guy, but not me. Oh, and by the way, Warren, my business isn't for sale. It's not for sale. When we come back, more of this remarkable American voice, and this is a distinctly American voice, Bill Austin's story, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. stories in the final portion of this remarkable life story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder, Bill Austin. Well, I think the shaping of my life began with my grandparents living with them during World War II. My parents were off working in a munitions plant in another state. But I asked my grandfather about his father who died when I was a baby. And he said, well, the thing that struck him about his father wasn't what he did as much as the way he did it. He said, for instance, when he was eight years old, some people moved in three and a half miles from them. And his father heard that they had uh, children, but they had no cow. And he told, his son Franklin, my grandfather, which was his youngest son, and the most expendable, he said, Frank, uh, those children will need milk. You take our best cow and walk her over there so the children will have milk. And Frank did that, my grandfather, and he came uh, back and he said what he noticed was he never mentioned ever to anyone anything about giving those folks a cow. And that struck him. He said he noticed that he never sought the people out to say, I'm the great guy that sent the cow to you. He said it was simply a matter for him that the children needed milk and he had more than one cow so he could help. So as he told me about his father, his father was an orphan in the Civil War. His family had been massacred by raiders and uh, They'd burned the farmstead to the ground and stole the horses and cattle. And this boy had run into the bushes at five years old. He was the only survivor. He didn't even know what state they came from. The only thing he knew was his name. He had nothing, he had no one. Uh, the lieutenant, when he saw he was the only survivor, stopped the pursuit and took him to a place of safety on the James River. To a mill, the first place he could dropped this boy off safely with a miller that had one leg called Peg Leg Nelson. And Peg Leg let the boy sleep in the mill and work for his keep. And so he made him a bed of straw in the mill and he worked there until he was 15 years old and was never paid a cent. But in those days at 15 it was time to leave and strike out on your own and he didn't know 
what to do, how that could happen, because he had no money, no place to get started, knew no one, and the lieutenant who found him so happened passed away. And the lieutenant had willed this boy the land he earned for serving on the Union side in the Civil War. My great-grandfather took that land and became a successful farmer and raised a fine family, and that's why I have a chance at life today, is because that happened. Now, the land wasn't worth much. Land was almost free and those cheap in those days, but it meant the world to that young man that someone gave him that chance. So, you know, I used to not be able to talk about the lieutenant because I thought it was so noble that he would care. He could have given it to a relative, the land, to a friend, someone else that would have said, that's my great friend, the lieutenant, and got some recognition for it, but instead he gave it to someone who couldn't thank him, couldn't do anything for him, because he knew the boy needed a chance. So I, you know, I thought that was incredibly noble. I wanted to live my life with some kind of contribution to life itself. So I admired him. I wanted to be like him. And yet Bill couldn't bring himself to publicly talk about him for decades. Well, I'd choke up and cry because of the lieutenant. What's wrong with crying? Oh, well, you know, men aren't supposed to cry in front of people, in front of audiences. And I, I, if I tried to tell the story, I just, I just, I couldn't talk. And then I realized I needed to because I decided it was a good example because this one person did what he could without getting recognition or being paid. Today, we affect millions of people because of one act of caring. So I like to say we can't afford to miss a chance to do that because one simple act might be so significant for the world. It might keep your own great-grandchildren from being killed by terrorists. It might, it might, who knows what it might do if you continue down the path of respect for life and caring and what might happen if you didn't. So I used to think it was the lieutenant. That's when I first stopped and it went there. And then I realized, well, it wasn't the lieutenant. It was the person who cared about the lieutenant who made him want to do that. And then, well, it was the person who cared about that person. And then I realized it went all the way back to his love. God's love. That he gave us, that started the whole thing. That's what makes people different. That's what gives us our true humanity, is that spiritual enrichment we get from knowing God's love. And I believe that's why I was told that my responsibility was to reflect, use hearing to reflect his love so people might know him. I think you know him from feeling that caring through other people, not directly. It's through people. So that's my idea. I'm not saying that I know. I'm not a preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. And I don't want to say that that's what God is telling anyone to do. I just know that's what I feel.
in 2010, right after the earthquake in Haiti. Well, I was in Haiti. Miley Cyrus was with me. And Miley's over fiddling with her phone at this Catholic school. And we're fitting kids with hearing aids. And I said, what's she doing? And they said, well, she's tweeting her followers. And I don't carry a phone. That's another thing that's weird that I don't do. So I'm not looking at text. I've never seen our website. Not once. I don't know what's on it. I don't know how to look for it. I don't know what it would be on it. I, I mean, I suppose. It's really lovely. Is it's it? a nice website. Yeah, I mean, I, I would... I wouldn't mind seeing it. It's just that, I don't know, I guess I'm always busy and no one's ever showed it to me. And So, anyway, Miley says she's tweeting that this is the best day of her life. And I said, well, that's what everyone says. That's what President Clinton says. That's what Ray Lewis says. That's what athletes, movie stars, presidents, everybody says this is the best day of their life. Uh, Ray Lewis, right after he won the Super Bowl in New Orleans and he, he was the most valuable player and he goes on a mission with us in March and he said I've been given a job by ESPN but this is the best day of my life I want to do this this is that I've never done anything that's good we're in Tanzania and Africa they all say that and so I said well that's what everyone says and I started thinking billions of followers that's it because I felt like a failure. Uh, you know, the Twin Towers go down, there's terrorism here and there around the world, and I felt like I was losing ground, like we weren't reflecting light as fast as the darkness was encroaching, and I wasn't gonna get the job done. And then I realized, I said, hey, with this, we could affect a consciousness shift with so many followers that admire these people and think about what they're saying, we could compound the message to more and more people and try to get more and more people addicted to good virus. And so I thought that I see the way. So I went home from that experience and I started thinking virtually every day. I really like my job and I think I know how to do it now if I only had more time. I wish I had more time, but I would never pray for it because I thought I had no right to ask for anything for myself. Because my only prayer every day in the morning before I would leave to work would be for his direction so I might serve better than I've ever served before. God's will be done. And great job, as always, to Alex. He does a superb job on this series. And thanks again to Job Creators Network. And they work hard to fight for the policies that help small business owners grow and hire more people and have more impact on the world. And my goodness, there is just so much here to unpack. But what we did learn here is the power of a story, folks. Him listening to his grandfather the grandfather telling him about this lieutenant. And never having met this man, he wanted to be like this man. And that is the power of stories. It's their imitative power. And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories, give you stories worthy of imitation. The world doesn't have enough of those. They need a lot more. And we try to do that for you each and every day here. 
He said, we can't afford to miss a chance. Who knows what it might do and what might happen if you didn't. God's love, that's what he was talking about here, and his responsibility to use hearing aids to reflect God's love so, well, he might know him and we might know him. I'm not a preacher, he said, but my goodness, he's a minister, and he's got a ministry, for sure. Bill Austin's story, the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and when Jesse plays music like that I know what's coming up he loves great practical jokes and so do we here on the show and he's been giving us any number of stories about great practical jokesters of the 20th century in this country and boy have we had some doozies in the past we had daredevils like Lawn Chair Larry who violated LA's airspace laws while floating on a lawn chair attached to weather balloons We had a hacker like Captain Crunch who broke into the national phone system using a whistle found in a cereal box so he and his buddies could make free phone calls long distance. And of course, Alan Abel, who convinced the world that we should put pants on barnyard pets. (laughs) That was my favorite. And by the way, this show loves the show Impractical Jokers. My little girl and I can sit down for hours on end and watch those guys on True TV just, well, crack each other up. And Americans are a fun-loving group of people. And that brings us to today's story about hackers and jokesters and hoaxers. And today we bring you the tale of an old school media hacker named Jim Moran, whose personal brand of trickery is sure to entertain. Here's Jesse. You can't buy publicity like this. Jim Moran was called, at various times, super salesman number one, America's number one prankster, and the last great bunko artist in the profession of publicity. He became famous during the 30s and 40s for devising outrageous stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a publicist and press agent for film studios, manufacturers, retailers, and Washington politicians from the 30s to the 80s. In 1989, Time Magazine ranked him as the supreme master of that most singular marketing device. The Publicity Stunt. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Born in 1907, Moran was the son of a chimney maker. When he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. The driver was so relieved to see that Moran was unharmed that he gave him $100, which Moran immediately used to take a train to New Orleans. Instead of going to college, Moran took a variety of jobs, including a tour guide in Washington, an airline executive, and a manager of a studio where congressmen recorded speeches for local radio. His favorite technique was to test the validity of popular sayings. In August of 1938, he traveled to Juneau, Alaska on behalf of General Electric, where he sold ice to an Eskimo. He then returned to Hollywood with 200 pounds of Arctic ice, claiming that it was the purest ice in the world. He sold 10 pounds of it to an actress who used it for facial treatments. In 1939, to promote a real estate development, he literally searched for a needle in a haystack. 
The search took him 82 and a half hours before he finally found it near the bottom and slightly to the left of center. In 1940, he led a live bull through a New York City china shop. The bull didn't damage anything. However, some of the china was broken when Moran's client nervously backed into a table. And that's just the first three publicity stunts that Jim Moran pulled off in his lifetime career of getting people's attention for a living. That advertisement had no effect on me whatsoever. In June of 1946, he sat on an ostrich egg for 19 days, 4 hours, and 32 minutes in order to hatch it. He did all of this while wearing a feather headpiece with a foot-high ostrich plume. Do they bite? No, they kick, but they aren't very bright. You lie down flat, he can't see you. That's the male. He has to guard the eggs. But if you can distract him... How do I distract a male ostrich? The stunt was designed to promote a movie called The Egg and I. The baby ostrich, when hatched, was named Ossip Moran. He donated it to a zoo. In November of 1946, Jim Moran tricked the Los Angeles Art Association into displaying an abstract painting of his own creation described by him as, quote, the worst thing I could think of. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees. He disguised the fake art as work of a previously unknown artist known as Naromji, which is his own name spelled backwards with a J-I added for confusion. The work hung beside paintings by well-known modern artists at the time and was given a price tag of $1,000. One million dollars was a ton of money in 1946. The painting was even described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, an astonishing conglomeration of paint, chalk, magazine cutouts, and fingernail polish. It consisted of a series of swirls and triangles, and in the spaces in between the lines, the artist had placed small pictures that included a fish, a head, an arm, eyes, and a leg cut out from a lingerie advertisement. But the Art Association was just a tad embarrassed when, at the end of the month, the publicist-slash-prankster Jim Moran revealed that he was the true author of the painting. The Art Association eventually criticized the hoax, arguing that it could make it harder for young unknown artists to get their work displayed. (laughs) One more of the dozens of pranks that Jim Moran here pulled off over the years was in 1947. During the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's trip to the United States, Moran showed up at Ciro's restaurant in Hollywood disguised as the prince. He was accompanied by fake guards and servants. During his meal, he tipped the waiters and band members with large gems. On his way out of the restaurant, the goatskin bag holding the gems accidentally broke, scattering the jewels all over the floor. One of his fake servants started to pick them up, but Moran imperiously waved his hand to signal him to stop, because picking up the jewels was beneath the dignity of a prince. He then left the restaurant, and upon his departure, the Hollywood elite dining at the restaurant immediately scrambled to snatch up the jewels, all of which were actually just dime store trinkets of no value. And those are just a few of the many publicity stunts and flat-out hoaxes that Jim Moran pulled off during his long career. Jim Moran died in Inglewood, New Jersey in October of 1999. His obituary, written in the New York Times, read, His life might be described by two symbols, the exclamation point and the dollar sign. He pushed outrageousness to the outer limits to seize the attention of the buying public. He got the attention he desired. Even his colleagues in the publicity business, a species not given to promoting much of anything without being paid, gave him respect. 
And that is the story of publicist, hoaxer, and prankster, Jim Moran. This is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Jesse, and we want more. That's all I can say. We want more of these. And just as my little girl and I can't get enough of impractical jokers, I don't think Americans can ever get sick of good and decent and sometimes even on the edge practical jokes. By the way, don't try practical jokes on people who can't take it. That's cruel. But for people who can, bring it on, baby. That's what we say. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Impractical jokester, hoaxer, Jim Moran story here on Our American Stories. There's a killer on the road His brain is squirming like a toad Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet family will die Killer on the road This is Our American Stories And back in the day, opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart. Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado. What have we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph. Well, chef's team, a trusty old Red Rider carbine action two on the shot range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No, he's not. In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas Story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Idiots, Bart! But if you do come back, you'll be pushing up daisies! But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwaymen Black Bart. Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, uh, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. No other road agent 
could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the motherlode country. Life in the diggings was rugged, and many a prospector died from disease, accident, or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner. Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them, but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit. He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed, and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places. That would be of value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart. Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle, and then just before the war ended, was commissioned as second lieutenant. After the war, his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often he sent Mary a letter saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting, but as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they aimed to buy up the whole territory. Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. 
They buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner. There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims, and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bow. Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. <laughs> Don't think. Good day. Doesn't look like much is coming. There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day. It'd be a shame if it didn't. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowles suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo, making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hardworking miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family, cut himself off from the past, and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework. I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp, to ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m. All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story, the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And we had learned that lots of gold was shipping all around this country from place to place. And my goodness, that made those gold carriers ripe targets for highwaymen, that is, bandits. Let's continue with the story of Black Bart. In July 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Mother Lode country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder. Put down that box. Please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Iwaman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. Driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, the driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up, bowed, and returned it to her, saying in a deep and resonant voice, Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. I don't know what you're reaching for, friend. Charles has poked sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out. Good day to you, sir. Thank you, Kai. He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz. Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolton because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. More champagne. Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. 
Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets. He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent. He was sharp. <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart. He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare and that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart. Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. Following Black Bart's first robbery, Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is uh, really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that. Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a, a lone man. Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of... Black Buck. Poet. He's mocking me. He's mocking me! Hume didn't know what to do with witness testimonies. What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir, he was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally. Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this Black Bart and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke. And so they're determined now to try and figure this out. And lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions. Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart. Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope. Not his style. 
No horse track. I escaped on foot. As Mott Bart's stage robberies continued, the price yeah. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. State of California chipped in another $300, and the U.S. government $200. The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s, something like $80,000 today. And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller. It's an American classic. Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. The world, at the time and now, knows him as Black Bart. This is our American stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to Our American Network. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And by the way, we love telling stories about the American West. And not in this particular case, but in so many cases, we use Phil Anschutz's terrific two books, Out Where the West Begins, as a subject and source material for those stories. We've done Samuel Colt's story, Jedediah Smith's, Levi Strauss's, which is a stemwinder, and the Coors family, you know, you take for granted Coors beer. Where did it come from? And who are the men and women who got it going? And why Denver? Why Colorado? These people came from Germany. Well, go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do and hundreds and hundreds of hours of American storytelling, classic American storytelling are there. When we last left off, Black Bart, well, the price on his head kept going up. Wells Fargo had money on his head. The American government... Lots of other private businesses. Well, there's a reason for it. Black Bart, well, he just kept hitting those stagecoaches. And as he kept hitting them, the price on his head, it just kept going up. And now we return to the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. 
Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri. Rolleri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning. He thought he might go up the hill a ways and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, Rolleri jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. The stage had nearly reached the summit when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He trained a shotgun on McConnell. Throw down that box. Uh, okay. Please. Bolt it to the floor. Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Rolleri fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark FX07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark. This man must be found. Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark. Take your men and leave no stone unturned. So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers? C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector. Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. 
He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick. A diamond ring was on one finger and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your minds located? Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger. <laughs> Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. Minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are Black Bart. The infamous highwayman. And poet. I had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one? Charles Bowles wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know. Buckbart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888. After serving a little more than four years, he was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? No. Oh. I've given up my life with crime. Are you going to go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done committing crimes. <laughs> After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco. And there, he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety, but he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that, that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different western states. 
then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared. And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake, and so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 